Dear listener, if you're a Ruby on Rails developer or an aspiring Rails developer, I want to tell you about a resource I've created that I guarantee can help you become a better Rails developer, probably. I want to give you this resource for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it, but first, a little background. I've worked at a lot of jobs in the past where they had a certain class of problems. Their code was messy and hard to understand, which meant it took forever to make any changes. They couldn't refactor and clean up their code because it was just too risky to do so. There was no way to know you weren't breaking something. Deployments were also quite scary. We didn't have any automated tests, so each deployment had to be preceded with a round of manual testing which wasn't always very thorough. Not to mention, manual testing meant that we couldn't deploy with any reasonable frequency, and therefore each deployment was huge, which made the problem even worse. And nobody wants to work at a place like that, so we had trouble attracting and retaining good people. It's no fun to work at a place from which all the smart people have fled. The problem at these places, or at least one of the main problems, was that they didn't have strong testing practices. I'm willing to bet, dear listener, that you've worked somewhere that has had those same kinds of problems. Maybe you even work someplace like that right now. And you want it to get better, but maybe you don't know how to write tests. And maybe the people you work with don't know how either, or maybe they do, but they don't have time to teach you. That's where I come in. I've created a guide called the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. You can find it at railstestingguide.com. I've been teaching Rails testing for years, and so I've seen all the common Rails testing questions. Here are a few examples. Which test framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the Rails testing tools and how do I use them? How do I add tests to an existing Rails project? The Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing covers these questions and several others. To get the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing, go to railstestingguide.com. Now on to the episode. Vitor Oliveira. Vitor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. My name is Vitor Oliveira, and I'm a passionate technologist. Uh, I'm a startup founder and also a hands-on software engineer specialized in back-end solutions, front-end solutions, and also iOS and Android. I'm the founder of Napstack. We provide live courses for tech professionals where we connect tech codes that can exchange knowledge and also share ideas in the community. Thanks for inviting me to the show. Yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Um, so I always talk, I, I like to talk about where people are from and stuff like that. You're from Brazil, right? 
Yes, I'm originally from the state of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And yeah, I ended up relocating to Canada four years ago. And currently I'm living here permanently as a resident. And uh, yeah, and I plan to stay here for longer. Where in Canada? I'm based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. Okay. For whatever reason, it seems like a lot of Brazilians relocate to Canada and specifically Vancouver. Do you know why that is? I think the reason might be because of the weather. It seems to me that Vancouver is has the nicest weather in Canada in terms of snow, in terms of cold. And I believe also the other factor why many Brazilians or many Latin people come to Canada is because of the immigration process, as well as the scarcity in the tech industry. So for example, in Brazil, we have a lot of software, good, great software engineers uh, that are able to speak understandable English. And, you know, many companies here are importing people uh, just to, you know, filling the gap in the industry. That's why you see not only Brazilians, but many other different cultures coming to Canada uh, compared to the United States, which has a more difficult immigration process. Yeah, I was talking to a Chinese friend of mine the other day, and she was telling me, well, I won't get into all the details of it, but it's, it's really like, it sounds very frustrating to try to get into the US depending on your situation, where you're coming from and all that stuff, of course. I think over time it got separated. I My understanding is that 20 years ago or maybe 30 years ago, it used to be easier to get a work visa in the US. And you know, a lot of people migrated, it became separated. And I think it's gonna become the same in Canada in, in a couple of decades or even before that. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, it's a topic I'd be interested to learn more about just because I'm just because I'm curious. Why is that all the way it is and all that stuff? But anyway, I, I have one more like kind of cultural question for you. We were talking pre-show about obviously people from Brazil speak uh, Portuguese, but I've learned that a lot of people in Brazil also speak Spanish. And you told me that you speak Spanish also. And I myself, I myself speak a little bit of Spanish. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Like, how how come you are able to speak Spanish? Why why is it the case that people in Brazil often speak Spanish also? Yeah, Spanish is like, I would say, the second language in Brazil. Uh, you would see a lot of schools teaching as a second language. So I had the opportunity to study in elementary school and also in high school, but I didn't know the importance. So I didn't focus as I needed to focus. Then... When I turned 25 years old, I decided to study Spanish and I invested in my education. So because of the proximity of the Latin countries, I was able to travel around to Argentina, Chile and other countries. And then I was able to develop my speaking skills. But the language like Spanish and Portuguese are extremely close. So you would find the same words or just different pronunciation between words. So you can literally be able to speak Spanish in maybe a, in a few months. Like I was able to start speaking in five months, I would say, like fluently. Obviously, I didn't have advanced grammar, so it took me more than one or maybe two years to learn all the grammar. But even the grammar structure is a Latin structure that you can master 
and you can see the similarities that can definitely accelerate this process. Okay, and what took you to these? So did you just visit these other countries or did you actually live in some of these Spanish-speaking countries? I lived in Colombia for two months just to study Spanish and also in Chile for a few months. And in Chile, I was working at Startup Chile and that was actually how I got interested in Spanish. I was, I went to Chile to work in a startup at Startup Chile as a Ruben Reyes developer and uh, and I didn't know anything about Spanish. So I was speaking Portuguese with with the taxes, tax drivers, and um, and and I was uh, wondering in the beginning of the trip why I shouldn't take a, a Spanish intensive course. And and then I did it. I, I was able to learn the present tense, the past tense, and I was speaking very badly uh, in that trip. And and that was the the beginning. Um, after that, I went back to Brazil and. I kept studying remotely with people, um, with Colombians and other people. And then I was able to, yeah, improve very fast. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, I've been learning Spanish for maybe about five years, but I don't practice very much. Um, and it's, I, I, I kind of speak Spanish whenever I encounter Spanish speakers, but the the town that I live in is like 99% white. And so it's hard to encounter Spanish speakers around here. Um, and then what I do, like maybe I go to the Mexican supermarket or something and it's just like, uh, buenos dias. And that's kind of the extent of the interaction, you know? Um, and so my progression hasn't been very fast, but then recently I went to Puerto Rico and everybody there speaks English. Cause it's kind of like tourism is the main industry there. Um, but even so, like whenever I would speak to somebody in Spanish, they would talk back to me in English, which was kind of annoying because I wanted to practice my Spanish, but they were they were depriving me of the opportunity. Um, but I found that like if I got in a taxi, the taxi drivers were less likely to speak English or like I talked to the cleaning people at the hotel, they couldn't really speak English. And so I learned to like seek out those people because they couldn't speak English as much. Anyway, just in like two weeks, I like advanced more in just two weeks than I had in like the previous year, just being in that environment. So I, I bet when you went and lived in those countries, it like moved you forward a ton. Totally, totally. Mm-hmm. And and when did you start learning English? So I started learning English in two thousand and nine. So it's been almost thirteen years or fourteen years, and uh, I had to. Uh, studies English uh, in the United States. Uh, I studied English in San Diego back in 2010. I stayed there for two months and I also studied English in Toronto in 2012 and I also had the opportunity to study English in San Francisco in 2018. Um, I, I think living abroad and seeing uh, the investment because this many people see language as a cost so i need to pay this trip or i need to pay this buy books or a specific course to be able to master a language but i think all i've also always seen language as an investment and uh, and i think this mindset allowed me to achieve so many things in my life so for example because i was able to learn english i think in five years um i was I, I got my first remote job in 2016, 
And I've been working remotely for around seven years just because of English. And I think English can unlock uh, your potential and can basically connect you with anyone in the in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah, I view things in a similar way. Um, so obviously, like, English is kind of like, maybe you could say it's like the most valuable language you could possibly know because there's so many opportunities in the English-speaking world. Obviously, if you want to work in the United States, uh, you have to speak English, basically. Um, but, like, I... It was interesting. I, I met this guy on a bus one time, just completely randomly. He was this physicist from Kazakhstan, and he told me something. He said, if you learn a language, you gain a world. And at that time, I had never seriously studied any other languages. But now that I have, I really understand what he meant by learn a language, gain a world. And I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um I think it basically also opens you the possibility of study and understand different cultures without even leaving your country. So by the time I knew English, I could understand many things in China and other countries that I wouldn't be able to understand if I didn't know English because I didn't know the language. Uh, and many news and many things are not really published in Portuguese. So I really see the value there. And I would say that in software development, the best resources are in English, like the best authors. So I, I would highly recommend software engineers to master English and get yeah. out of your comfort zone. Yeah, something that really helped me um, as somebody who teaches programming, I started learning Chinese. Um, and that's, that's the language I've spent the most time studying. Um, and... Chinese is infamously difficult for English speakers to learn. Um, and one of the reasons is, unlike Spanish, you can't read it. Like, if you're an English speaker, you can still read Spanish because you can sound out the words. Even if you don't know the meaning of what you're reading, you can still read it. But Chinese, you can't read it. Um, so when I started speaking, I would meet with a Chinese friend each week and we would speak Chinese. And I just had to learn from her, like, teaching me but i had to learn it from a person and it was super slow and i felt like a complete idiot like most of the time and i made all kinds of mistakes embarrassed myself constantly but all that was a really good reminder of what it's like to be a complete beginner at something because i think people who are at my level of experience your level of experience we don't remember what it's like to be a total beginner and so a lot of these resources resources online you end up with these, um, I don't know, you've, you've probably encountered technical documentation on something you're not familiar with, and it assumes that you know all these things that you don't know. And therefore, when you read the stuff, it's like impossible to understand it because it's like, okay, I just read this sentence, but it refers to like four different things, and I don't know what those are. Now I have to go look up these four separate things. They each refer to several different other things I've never heard of. And it's just impossible because the person who wrote it forgot what it's like not to be familiar with any of those topics. Yeah, I, I had the same experience in my life. I honestly studied uh, Chinese Mandarin uh, a little bit. I took three online classes and then I gave up because of the difficulty. 
so I, I think you have three things. I think you have the um, intonation, pronunciation, I believe, and there is also another thing. So you have a lot of, um, yeah, you can make the same, almost the same sound means different things in Chinese. And uh, I, I don't know, I think it's a lot of, you need to do a lot of gymnast, uh, mm -hmm. gymnastics with your tongue and also with your mouth. So even, so if, if I'm not able to speak English perfectly, like I still have like some pronunciation issues. My English is really good. I cannot complain. Uh, I'm self-confident when I'm speaking, but uh, if I'm not able to master pronunciation in English really well, imagine in Mandarin, it would be, I don't know, I think it would take a life uh, unless I can find a group support. Uh, or if, for example, uh, I could have a relationship, for example, my girlfriend would be Chinese and then I, I believe it would be a little bit simpler, uh, but being alone in this journey seems to be endless. Yeah, well, I have a suspicion that I might be like part Chinese or something, because for me, part, Chinese just makes sense to me. Um, when I started learning Spanish, I found it really hard to pronounce. I still find it hard to pronounce. Um, I'm learning French right now. I find it extremely hard to pronounce. Um, but Chinese, for whatever reason, I just find it easy. The tonality part of it, I find that hard. I'm not even making an effort to get good at that part yet. But like the... I, I don't find the sounds hard to make. And even though the vocabulary is hard, just like, I don't know, it, it matches the way my brain works for some reason. Um, so I've, I've stuck with it. Plus, it helps to have a partner who I'm teaching English to. And so, like, um, I could quit learning Spanish anytime and no big deal because I don't have anybody who I work with on it. But if I quit learning Chinese, then I'd have to quit helping my Chinese friend and I have to let her down. So I'm almost like being dragged along whether I want to or not and learning Chinese bit by bit. So that kind of helps. Very cool experience. Um, yeah, I think like Spanish is definitely something that I want to invest more time. Probably my next one might be French. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I've read that that's one of the most... Oh, go ahead. I, I prefer Latin language mm -hmm. uh, because the grammar is similar. Like the, the structure is, it's quite the same. Uh, and, 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 I, and I can see the result faster. Like with this language, like Japanese uh, or Mandarin, I don't feel very comfortable and, and I don't have the network to, to practice. So that's, that's why I think I, I might be struggling. Yeah, my, my opinion is if you know English and Spanish, then French vocabulary will be pretty easy. Um, for me, the pronunciation again is, is really, really hard, but the vocabulary is pretty easy. I can kind of read a passage of French and understand what it's about just because the vocabulary, there's so much shared vocabulary between English and Spanish that, that between those two, maybe half the words in French uh, either have some, some analog in English or Spanish. Um, would you say that, you know, the ability to learn a new language help us in learning programming language? Do, do you believe that there is an association between programming language and also this other language such as English or Spanish? That's a really interesting question. And I would say no. Um, I wish the answer was yes, because that would be helpful and convenient and all that. But I think the answer is no. I think they work in a similar way. 
you know, once you learn, if you learn one programming language, your second programming language is easier. And then your third is even easier than that. And so on, which I think is parallel to learning spoken languages. Cause you have to learn like those concepts and stuff like that. And then independent of the programming language, the concepts are going to be very similar, but I don't see how learning a new spoken language could help you learn programming languages or, or anything like that. What do you think? Um, I, I think it's a very interesting topic because there are maybe some similarities like in programming language that you can find in a language like English. So for example, programming language can have some sort of grammar, right? Can have a structure, but definitely like it's totally different. So you would have like different types of concepts inside programming or inside software development that would go beyond, that wouldn't be really related to English or Spanish. So for example, you need to implement some patterns or you need to study some architectural uh, design patterns, for example, and other things that to, to connect to the programming language. And I don't think we have these things in English and Portuguese, for example. So I think they are totally different things. Definitely the ability to, uh, to practice and use them might be the same. Like you need to practice, you need to exercise that muscle to be able to be really good in software development and also in English or French. Uh, but they are different things. They, and, and also, like, you don't speak Ruby. You don't speak mm -hmm. Python, right? You mm -hmm. write Python, you read Ruby code. Uh, and English, you have these four pillars. So you still need, need to listen and be able to understand others, and you still need to be able to speak clearly. Uh, so I would say, like, even the structure is different. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, I think they're two totally separate endeavors that, that don't really synergize with each other. Um, so coming back around to the technical topics, you and I were talking pre-show about our experiences with startups and stuff like that. I've worked for a lot of startups in my career. It sounds like you have too. And we were talking about working with code that doesn't have tests. That's something I've done a lot of myself, like inheriting a project or joining a team who has a project that was written without tests. And I'm the kind of person who writes tests as a habit for any of the code that I write. Um, and so when I come into a project that doesn't have tests, usually, you know, usually it's not the case that the team is against tests. Um, sometimes that's the case, but it's usually not the case. Usually the team is kind of embarrassed by the fact that they don't have tests or at least they wish they had tests. And so we're trying to retroactively add tests to the application. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of tee up that topic and maybe talk about this experience of working with what you might call legacy projects that were built without tests and all that kind of stuff. What do you think? Um, yeah, I have some experience with applications without tests and also applications with tests. So my first startup that I built it in between 2011 and 2012, it was my first experience with Ruben Rails. And I came from a different background. So I was previously uh, developing applications in Visual Basic, uh, in, yeah, in Delph and other applications like ASP. I was using HTML, CSS, JavaScript. 
So all those old legacy applications didn't really have tests. And by the time I started studying Ruby and Ruby on Rails, I didn't know the importance of putting tests in the code. So I built an entire application using Ruby on Rails and I was using the Spree framework for the e-commerce. And we were able to build the application, I would say maybe in four weeks, five weeks, and we launched the MVP. We we were able to successfully attract customers. It was a textbook rental company in Brazil. So we would rent physical textbooks for college students. So they would rent calculus, business administration books via the e-commerce they would receive in their houses. And then after the semester, they would return in the college. And 10 years ago, this business module wasn't very popular in Brazil. Nobody was doing it. So we were the first movers. And we were able to attract 500 students in the first MDP, in the first semester, with a marketing strategy that we'd find. And this project didn't have any tests. So the amount of bugs that we had were big, like were, it was huge. And, uh, and at the end, like many customers got stuck in the cart. There are some bugs that wouldn't allow people to finish uh, the, the payment process. Uh, but other users would be able to complete the process. And after the semester, we decided we, we, we were able to raise investment. So we raised it, uh, around $1 million investment in a demo day presentation. And then my first, uh, the first task that I did was to hire a senior software engineer who was specialized in Ruby. And then we rebuilt the entire application because it wasn't really maintainable. Um, and then by the time I was working with that developer, I started studying more about unit tests, integration tests, and I saw the importance of having them. And that was a very bad experience that I had. Uh, and we really wanted to get things done very fast. And I think that was the reason. And that, that was one of the reasons, right? And the second reason was because I didn't know the importance of tests, as I said in the beginning. I want to pause and, and um, make a comment here. You know, sometimes developers are encouraged to cut corners and stuff like that. Um, and there are certain like catchphrases that are directed at programmers to to get them to to do these things. Um, and one of the things people sometimes say is users don't care about code, just ship, you know. Um, and I think that saying is such bullshit. Because it's like, yeah, users don't literally care about code, but when the code causes these problems like bugs and stuff like that, or when the low quality of the code makes it so you can't get a release out and all that stuff, then of course users care about that. So like, yeah, users don't care about code, but they do care about the symptoms of bad code. So I, I, I guess one reason I share that is like, if anybody, dear listener, tries to use that line on you, you can respond with that. Like, yeah, they don't literally care about code, but it does affect them. Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, there is, yeah, I, I honestly think that if you don't write tests, you may be increasing your churn rate. And uh, people will if they get stuck in the mirror of the signup or in the mirror of the payment process, they might go to your competitor and they will sign up and pay because they have a problem that they want to solve. And if, if it is urgent, they're going to do it anyway. And the bug might block them from doing that. And the, the user experience is just going to be bad unless they have some kind of like 
sympathy with you and they want to use your product and help you. Otherwise, you would lose them. And that happened with me. I lost some users and that's just part of the lessons learned for me. I think besides doing the tasks as a developer, like unit tests and also integration tasks, uh, QA, quality assurance, is also some a discipline that many software developers do not do. And even though they write the unit tests and the integration tests, they don't stop to put the ending point on Postman or Insomnia and run a bunch of manual tests as, you know, without writing the code, right? Being just a QA analyst and uh, trying to break your code or trying to break your endpoints that you created. And I think that's another additional thing that the developer should know apart from writing tests. Yeah, that's a tough one because there's kind of a conflict of interest present because for me as a developer, it's in my interest to discover that my code works because if I discover a bug in my code, then I have a responsibility to fix that bug and I have to do more work. So I'm incentivized not to find bugs. But if I'm a QA person, my whole job is to uncover bugs. And if I find a bug, that doesn't translate to any more work for me. In fact, I'm incentivized to find bugs because that's kind of my job. That's I get graded on um, if, you know, if I never found any bugs, then it seems like my job would be pointless. Um, and I'm not sure what to do with that information because it's not always possible for somebody to, you know, you don't always have a QA person to test your code for you. I guess that's more of an explanation um, for, for why it's the case that developers often don't do a very good job of QAing their code. But if you don't have QA people, I totally agree with you that it's good to to try to do that yourself, to try to put your shoes, to, to try to pretend that you're somebody else and that you're trying to break your code. And again, automated tests can, can help with that. Um, and maybe in those scenarios, like it helps to write this stuff down. Cause I, I find that when I'm writing automated tests, the act of writing down the test scenarios like gets the juices flowing for me. And after I come up with like four scenarios that I think I need to test, I realize that like, oh, also I need to test these three other scenarios and blah, blah, blah. But if I had never started writing those things down, then um, then it never would have gotten the juices flowing to think about that stuff. So to do the job of manual QA, I think most developers, and this is me most of the time too, but most developers probably just do um do manual testing in a very ad hoc kind of way um and i think we could do a better job of that if instead we did it more systematically to the point of actually writing down our test cases yeah totally i i really believe that reserving some time in the planning session before executing the tasks just to discuss uh how you would test that solution or how you would design the implementation of that solution is important and many people skip this step. Um, I wonder like some companies that I have chatted, they sometimes discuss the point of balancing uh, feature requests versus tech debt. And they usually say that, you know, it's important to ship as fast as possible and to avoid perfectionism. Uh, and I wonder how much test is necessary. Like, how, what is the balance? Like, how much test should we test? Uh, 
yeah, when is it like too much tests and when is not in your opinion? That's a great question. So I get triggered when people talk about like perfectionism because, you know, there's there's that other saying, I've ranted about this before, perfect is the enemy of the good um, or any mention of perfectionism, gold plating, stuff like that. Because the choice in reality usually isn't between perfect and merely good. Um, the choice is usually between decent and abysmal. Like most code bases, um, most code bases I've seen, probably most code bases you've seen are terrible. Like they're not, it's not that they're not perfect and they're merely good, it's that they're shit. And so this like perfect versus good dichotomy is a false dichotomy. Um, it's it's really like decent versus terrible. Um, and so I think we have more than enough arguments against writing good code. We need more arguments for good code. Um, it's I, I've compared it to this before. Um, so like, as you know, uh, a lot of people in America are too fat. Something like 75% of Americans are overweight. It's crazy. Um, and it's as though somebody comes along and people, people do say stuff like this sometimes. They're like, oh, make sure not to get too skinny. Don't undereat. And it's like, no, no, that's like our problem is overwhelmingly the opposite problem. Like Americans eat way too much, not too little. Um, and so it's the same thing with like gold plating code and, and people are always encouraging developers not to spend too much time making the code too perfect. Um, but we need way less of that. We need way more people encouraging programmers to spend more effort on doing a better job. Anyway, your, um, your question to me was something like how much, uh, test coverage is enough, that kind of thing. My opinion of that is this. Um, sometimes people put test coverage metrics tools on their code bases and stuff like that, and that's fine. Um, but it's usually not a mystery when you need more tests. And whether you need more tests or you have enough tests, your test coverage percentage number isn't, in my opinion, the place to look to get that answer. Um, what I would ask yourself is questions like this. Um, before we do a release, do we have to do a big expensive round of manual QA? Um, or do, does it take us, you know, do we, do we release like once every month because of this? Um, and when we release, does everybody feel like they're on pins and needles? They're really nervous because they know every time we do a release, there's some kind of fire in production and we have to do a rollback or do some kind of hot fix, that kind of thing. Um, do we have more bugs than we feel like is acceptable? Is our code lower quality than we'd like because we can't refactor the code because we don't have enough test coverage to confidently refactor? So those are the kinds of questions I would ask myself. So in other words, to what degree are we suffering from the symptoms of not having tests because that test coverage number you know we're at 60 percent or 80 percent or whatever 
that's just like a really rough proxy. It's it's you're not measuring the real thing that matters. Um, the real thing that matters again is to what degree you're suffering the symptoms of not having tests. And if you ask yourself those questions and you say like, no, we release like several times a day, our code's in great shape, we can refactor as much as we want, like we're doing fine, then okay, great, you're probably good on test coverage. Uh, most places um, aren't there and it's not a mystery to them. You know, like when you need more tests, it's usually not a mystery. Um, if if you uh, talk to 10 different organizations, uh, chances are that nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 need more tests, not fewer tests. And so for almost everybody, the answer is that we need more. So that's the way I view that. Yeah, I think one way that really helps software engineers to come up with good tests is basically to be a user of the product that they're building. Uh, in my experience, I've worked for more than 10 different companies. Uh, in many occasions, I wasn't an end user and for many reasons, right? So for example, I was working uh, remotely in a company when I was living in Brazil and the client was Michelin. Uh, the office was, I think, South Carolina and Michelin, South Carolina. And we were building a e-commerce platform for Michelin, Michelin. Like the and, tire company? Yeah, the tire company. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't use their platform because it was a B2B e-commerce platform, kind of a marketplace where they would sell tires. And uh, so I would never be able to understand all the behaviors that I would have in the system. But but I really think it's very important to be an end customer uh, when you are a developer, just to be able to analyze and understand the user experience. So I would say that's one of the things that does not help us to predict the behaviors. Uh, what are some of the things that you believe help us to yeah, be able to understand the behaviors of the users? Man, there's so much to it. Um, so yeah, making software that's like making good software is really hard and there's so much to it but okay one thing i'll say is this it starts so far upstream um and we talk about bugs but i think more so than bugs we should be talking about defects and a bug is just one kind of defect um and in my opinion there's three kinds of defects bugs um design defects and um, missing features. And I'll explain each of those. Bugs is kind of self-explanatory. We all know what a bug is. Um, but a design defect is when a feature is working as intended, but the way it was designed doesn't do an adequate job of meeting the user's needs. And then a missing feature is also self-explanatory. It's when the user needs to do something, but they don't have the capability in the software. Um, and I think all three of these are equally important because it's like, it doesn't matter what the defect is. It, it only matters that the defect exists. And so like, sometimes people talk about like, um, should we prioritize bugs or new features? And to me, that question doesn't really make that much sense because it's like, well, you have to take it on a case by case basis. Like if you have a really minor bug that only affects a few people every great once in a while, um, but you have this missing feature that's causing great pain to all of your users, 
then obviously you should build that new feature before the bug, before fixing the bug. And maybe it's the case that that bug's so minor and it's so costly to fix the bug that you should never fix that bug. Anyway, my point there is that we should be talking about defects rather than than bugs primarily. Um, and so the question we can pose to ourselves is how do we try to minimize the number of defects? And this starts really far upstream because it starts with the entire design of the system. And for that, and I'm getting back to your original question here, um, the way I like to do that is do, uh, to, to go through the process of usability testing. So I had a job in the past where I had a chance to do a lot of usability testing and I could talk for a long time about it, but I'll try to give the condensed version, which is that when I became aware of a need that I needed to fulfill, I would first draw up a design on pen and paper, and then I would go to either an end user of the system or somebody who is representative of, of the end user, and I'd go through a series of usability tests. I'd come up with several scenarios, and I wouldn't show the person the design and ask, what do you think of this design? I would say, here, try to use this design to carry out this task. I wouldn't give many hints. They would take the pen. They would take a pen and, and fill out the form. I would kind of act like the web server. They would pass me the paper across the desk, and I would pass the response across the desk with a different piece of paper. Almost always, I found that my first design was way off, and I would go back and do a new pen and paper prototype. I'd go through that process however many times was necessary, and just that right there, that uncovered a lot of design defects. And then once I did that, I would do a higher fidelity prototype, maybe in balsamic mockups or something like that, put that through another round of usability testing. And then once I had the defects worked out of that, I would build the actual um, I would build the actual software. And that was so much easier at that point because you know there's two jobs when we're building any feature. We have to write the code to make it work, but we also have to decide how it's going to work. And quite a lot of the times, that first job of deciding how the feature is going to work is not actually done. And it's it's sad. Like A lot of people who uh, consider themselves professional designers and get paid to do this, they hand designs to programmers and they're not fully fleshed out they're not ready to be worked on um because it, it it takes a lot more rigor and time and effort than you would think to to get to that state of being all the way done with that design and it seems like it's like you know oh we can't afford to spend all this time doing this stuff up front um but it's actually way more expensive like what's more expensive taking the time to design it to get the defects out up front or paying a programmer to build this entire thing, putting it in the hands of the user, and then discovering the defects, and then you have to go back and modify this existing software. And probably, you know, the what the case normally is, is that it's cost prohibitive, and you can't go back and fix it. You just have to make some minor tweaks and limp along with this thing that you're kind of half happy with, and it never gets fixed and then your project your product just permanently sucks because you had to compromise in this way 
that's mm-hmm. much more expensive than just taking the time to get these defects out up front. Um, that was a much longer answer than I intended yeah. to give, but but that's my thought on that. Really great. Yeah, I think what we, you were saying is, in my, in my view, is basically like the decision-making process of how we are going to build the software. And uh, when you are a junior developer, you just want to make a button work, or you want to make that the ending point return a specific uh, JSON response or a specific outcome. Right, but when you start like getting more experience and when you have more context, uh, you end up doing exactly what you were what you were saying. <clears throat> so first, you identify the objective that you have, and then you think about the alternatives. So how what are the alternatives that I could bring that can s- solve this objective? And I see software development just like mathematics. So if you want to achieve the number four, you would have two plus two. But you could also have two times two or three plus one. And you have so many options. Uh, And uh, being aware and being able to reflect about many ways that your software could be built before implementing is really important, in my opinion. And it's actually what makes a senior developer really great. And once you know the alternatives, uh, you are able to analyze and address the trade-offs of those alternatives. And then you can start a group discussion. And usually, uh, I find it hard to have group discussions with team members uh, when it comes to some biases. Like people make decisions based on the group of bias. Uh, but when you have a really great and strong team, these group discussions really help less experienced developers to upskill in their careers faster. So that's how I see like this decision-making process in software development. Hmm. Yeah, so, okay, what do you mean by the group discussion part? Like, what are they talking about or deciding or whatever? Yeah, just uh, when, you know, when the team meets to discuss the design approach, um, you, you usually do a consensus approach. So you probably would do a voting session where people would decide which approach it would take or maybe the tech lead of that team is just going to explain why alternative b is the best alternative and it is going to explain the trade-offs of that alternative and uh, yeah usually uh, i would say that a bios in a group discussion could happen when for example four people want to do something and the other three people in the room are unsure and they tend to agree with the majority of the group yeah yeah it's tough yeah i think that depends a lot on the group like if you have for example four really smart and experienced people then the consensus um method seems good but if you have like three inexperienced people i'll put it this way you're familiar with the concept of a midwit mm-hmm. yeah yeah so you know, and for for the listener's benefit, if if you're not familiar with this concept, it's like somebody who's not actually that smart, but they like think they're super smart. They're really outspoken and opinionated and all that. If you have like one smart per- person and three midwits, the midwits might agree on something and overpower the fourth person just due to numbers. And so then it doesn't work out that great. So, yeah, I think that's another thing that I personally would take on a case-by-case basis. 
Yeah, I really like these design sessions where you have the opportunity to open a discussion with your team to discuss, you know, the approach that you could uh, do for a specific problem that you have. And I think that's a really good way of mentoring other software developers who are still developing their hard skills and also soft skills. You would allow them to just, you know, communicate technical requirements and uh, try to make their own conclusions. So I really see a value on that. And in my experience, uh, maybe I, I don't know the number of companies that I worked before that had this pattern, but a part of the companies, you would literally just be assigned in a user store on Monday in a sprint planning meeting. And then you would just do the normal scrum daily meetings during the week. And you wouldn't even talk about the solution. So you would open a pull request after finishing that solution. Some companies you would have code review and other companies you wouldn't have code review, which in my opinion is not good. Like you, you, I, I think software development, in my opinion, is kind of a soccer game. You need to play in teams to be able to make goals. Wait, so let me make sure I understand. You think it's good to have code review? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So some companies that I worked, you would just open a pull request and merge without no nobody would take a look at your code review, uh, and other companies wouldn't even use branches. So and in my opinion, that doesn't yeah that 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 is not gonna be good for the software that you're building, and the, the reason that that uh, I was saying is that you know software engineering software development, it's a soccer team, so you need to play together to be able to win the game and you know you're yeah so who is playing against you the competitors so if you do not do a good job with your software you are allowing your competitors to create a better software and win the game yeah i completely agree with you about code review um there was a blog post that was on hacker news some time ago said something about um pull request reviews and trust and it said like we don't do pull. Did you happen to see that one? No, not yet. Um, it said something like, we don't do PR reviews because we trust our developers. And why are you operating this in this low trust environment where you have to like gatekeep all your pull requests? And I think that's really missing the point because it's like when I code a feature, I make a pull request for my own um, for my own work, even if I'm working solo and then I'll review my own pull request later. Um, or if there's other people, I might ask them for a PR review. And it doesn't have anything to do with trust because it's like, um, well, it the kind of trust matters. It's like, yeah, I trust my coworkers to make a good faith effort, um, but do I trust my coworkers to never make mistakes like i don't trust anybody including myself to never make mistakes that's that's just stupid um so i i think that really again misses the point um and i so many things are are situation dependent but i think a lot of times it's good for a team to to be kind of like a, a kitchen with a chef in the kitchen um and if possible have the the chef reviewing the 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 pr uh reviewing the prs and that one person has the authority to say this is good this is bad blah 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 
and all the code kind of matches that person's vision. That's maybe kind of a controversial view because um, I don't believe it. When it comes to a company, I don't believe in democracy. I believe in dictatorships. I think nations should be democracies. Obviously, a dictatorship is bad on the level of a nation, but on the level of a company, a company isn't a country. It works so much differently. And I think a company should be a dictatorship with a benevolent dictator. Now, again, it can be different if it's a, a small team of people who are at the same level and stuff like that. But if you have somebody who's really experienced and a team of juniors, I think the chef in the kitchen model works a bit better. But that's my view on that. Yeah, I think there is another point which is very important, which is knowledge sharing. When people, if you don't do code reviews and you just merge the code to the main branch, how, and imagine that you have like maybe 10 applications or even 20 applications and you have more than five developers or even more than 10 developers. How are you going to make sure that everybody or at least your team knows what you're building? And then when you, let's say that after a few years, you get a great proposal from another company and you want to leave the company. So how are you going to explain all the work that you did for your team members? So I, I think it's a mechanism of based to help people to understand the evolution of the software. And obviously it helps to reduce tech debt, in my opinion. And maybe you forgot to add an automated test and I'm reading your code and hey, Jason, you should have tested this part of the code with this behavior. I'm sure that we are gonna have problems here. Um, we have blind spots. So it's not really about micromanaging people or not having trust. I think it's just making sure that we can build better software. Yeah, and I'll confess that sometimes I get lazy. Sometimes I just skip the test or I don't do refactoring or something like that just out of sheer laziness. And if I put the PR out there, somebody might say, hey, Jason, there's no test for this? And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay, I'll, I'll add the test. Because if I... If I do that and then I don't add the test, like it's kind of embarrassing. It's like, what kind of programmer am I? Um, and also, if you share your code in that kind of public way in a pull request, um, you're you're maybe sharing an example, um, and you're implicitly communicating this is how it should be done. Um, in the case that you're like one of the more senior members of the team, and so for me. I would hate to put a PR out there and do slipshod work and set a bad example for the other developers. So it incentivizes me not to be lazy and to, to do a bit better of a job. So that's another reason I think that's good. Well, Vitor, now I'll ask you my last question that I, that I ask everybody before we go, which is uh, where can people go to, to find out more about you online and all that? Yeah, sure. Uh, to find me online, you can access my LinkedIn profile or you can uh, check out my website, which is naps.tech. And I look forward to connecting with you and sharing ideas and exchanging knowledge. Thank you for having me today, Jason. Yeah, Vitor, thanks so much for coming on the show.